Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. My name's Marshall. And Marshall is trapped. I've trapped something on myself. Marshall Marshall put on a guitar. I did. And then put on his headphones. (laughs) I did. And now you need to take off your headphones (laughs) so that you can lose the guitar. This is like, I do this pretty much every Sunday (laughs) that I'm leading worship where I, I put things on in the wrong order. And then end up entangled in various chords. It's not as bad now as it was during COVID. When you would have... So mm. at one point in COVID, I was right. playing on the worship team. We were still using the headset mics, right? Mm. The one over the ear. Yep. Um, and so I had my guitar strap, my in-ear monitors, and my microphone. <laughs> but I had to wear a mask. <laughs> And all of these straps and wires all around my ears and surrounding my face. And it was a wonder that I ever got out of it. (laughs) You didn't strangle yourself. (laughs) I remember at one point we were in the middle of a song and my mask is just dangling. And I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of it, but I can't figure out what it's hung on. Oh, well. (laughs) Those days are over for over. Let's just go with it. Let's go with over. Over. <laughs> Every time someone says, well, well, I'm like. Yep. Like, well, you know. The one that we don't mention. <laughs> you must not be named. All right. So um, before we get our started with our episode today, I wanted to share some fun facts of things that are going on. Yay. Before. Yay. Marshall does the thing. All right, so, 1593, Galileo, who did a bunch of cool things, invents the thermometer. Cool. Which is handy to have. Celsius or Fahrenheit? I don't know. I didn't do enough research to tell you. (laughs) Probably Celsius. I mean, Celsius makes more sense. Can we just be, okay, can we just decide that Celsius makes more sense? That zero as the freezing point. 100 as the boiling point just makes more sense than 32 as the freezing point and I don't even know, 180 or something. It, it is more logical. Of all the things that I've adjusted to since moving to moving away from the U.S., Celsius is probably the one where I've shifted my mindset. Mm. Uh, it's also using, uh, it's more precise to use Fahrenheit. Sure, yeah, because it well because yeah. the divisions are are less. Yeah, no, I get that, I get that, but yeah, fair enough. Anyways, in any case, sixteen oh one to sixteen oh three, there's a famine in Russia, and this famine they they estimate kills about a third of the population. A third, a third. Can you imagine? Wow. Anyways, um, 1616, our good friend William Shakespeare passes on. He's been writing his plays, allegedly, I guess. There's a whole thing about whether or not he actually even wrote any of the plays. I don't know. I mean, I went went to England and visited the house where he apparently lived. 
mm-hmm. when he was there. So, I mean, if he didn't actually exist, it's a pretty elaborate ruse that they've kept up for about 400 years. So, yeah, that's that's just bizarre. Yeah, but I but it, I don't know if you've heard this, but I've read like I've read things of people like questioning whether or not he actually wrote anything or anyways. It's then who did? Some other guy, I can't even remember his name. He, now. he we'll was, get an email from someone. He Paul Thistle, inc- tell us who it was because I I don't know. He was incredibly famous for his time in his time. Yes, not the kind of person that died and became famous. <laughs> yeah. So why why would someone sit aside as a starving artist and allow someone else to claim wealth and fame? I have no yeah. idea. Anyways. And then 1619, which is kind of goes up to where we're going to be talking about today, is when the first African slaves are brought to what is now the United States. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an idea of what is going on in the outside world yeah. as, uh, as these events are taking place. And this is the Dutch episode. Pretty much everything we're going to talk about today has to do with Dutch people. Mm-hmm. So put on your klompen, grab some Oli Bolin. And join us for the ride, which if we were really Dutch would be on a bicycle because they're crazy about bicycles over there. <laughs> Neither <laughs> one of us are Dutch. No. But both of our wives are Dutch. Yes. So we ha- we understand. We are of the crowd that is not much. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some people listening who will get that reference. Right. It's true. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm trying. Oh, man, I'm racking my brain. I can't remember if it's Sinclair Ferguson in the whole Christ or R.C. Sproul in um, the holiness of God. Oh, you know what? It might be the Reformation for Armchair Theologians. Anyway. You're just dropping books. Anyway. Yeah. Read all these books, people. They're all good. They're all good. Go read and tell me which book it was in. I think it was the Reformation for Armchair Theologians. It's just been a long time. But anyway, the statement was that going around during the Reformation, uh, when it came to the Dutch, they said, uh, wherever you have a Dutchman, you have a theologian. Where you have two, you have a schism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we're going to see a little bit of that today. Sure. So the, the main figure, I guess the... The historical portion, because we're going to talk a little bit about history. Very little. And then a lot yeah. about theology. Yeah. So the, fir- the the main figure we want to talk about is a guy named Jacobus Arminius. Mm-hmm. And Jacobus was born around 1560 in Udvater. Sure. Sure. Sounds like my father-in-law. So Udvater, mm-hmm. in what is now the Netherlands. His father died when he was very young. And his mother died when he was a teenager. Now, the reason for his mother's death is actually something worth mentioning briefly here. So she was killed in the Spanish massacre of Udovater. So the Netherlands at this time was actually controlled by Spain. That might seem weird. You're thinking, what does Spain have to do with the Netherlands? That's a good question. And a lot of Dutch people were asking that same question, in fact. (laughs) And so a number of... It was one worth answering. (laughs) Yeah. So there was a number of Dutch people who revolted, um, and they were led for a time by a character you may have heard of uh, named William of Orange, uh, or maybe you've heard of Orange Men or Orange Men's Day or anything like that. He was a Protestant noble. The revolts in the Netherlands lasted for about 80 years. So we're talking multiple generations of fighting, the Dutch fighting against the Spanish. Eventually, the land is split, the northern part becomes Protestant 
becomes a republic, becomes what is now the Netherlands. The southern portion remains Catholic and is what is now Belgium and Luxembourg and, and that kind of area. So anyways, at one point, their town is under siege by the Spanish. And when they break in, Jacobus's mother was slaughtered at the end of the siege. And he's, he's a teenager, but he's not quite independent. So mm-hmm. he's adopted by a priest. Priest who leans more Protestant. He's educated at university. A liberal arts student who took an interest in theology. And the thing to understand when it came to theology in, in that part of Holland at that time, it was overwhelmingly Calvinist. So he would have been brought up with a predominantly Calvinistic perspective in his education. Lutheran influence, maybe some Anabaptist influence as well, but but that's what he did. He even went to Geneva. Yeah. And he stuttered, studied under um, Theodore Beza, who was the mm-hmm. successor, I guess, of Calvin. Isn't he a nephew? Isn't there a There's relation? some kind of family relation. Yeah, I should know this. Maybe. But anyways, there's some kind of, I think they're, you're right, or maybe through marriage or something like that. But anyways, Theodore Beza and, and a lot of the other kind of Calvinistic reformers, they really liked him. Yeah. He was highly recommended. Smart guy. Yeah. Like they loved him as a student. They loved him as a, just a good all around guy. They, you know, he came highly recommended. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they sent him back to Holland where he served as a pastor. Things get a little sticky when he's asked to weigh on a debate about lapsarian theology. Yes. If we we are gonna have a we're gonna have a lot of deep talks today. <laughs> Man, it's gonna get deep. If you don't know what lapsarian theology is, buckle up. <laughs> yeah, I I think that we are gonna I, I brought I brought a big fat theology book. Good. That's so we'll that we it. can divide up lapsarianism when it comes time. <laughs> okay, so we can you wanna talk we can talk about that later. Sure. We'll skip we'll we'll stick anyways. Put a we, pin in lapsarianism. We'll come back to it in Dort. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. So, anyways, he then starts, begin teaching through the book of Romans. And he has some, some perspectives that are different than the majority of the people around him as mm-hmm. he's working through Romans. It first pops up in Romans 7. So, there's, there's a famous passage in Romans 7 where Paul is writing... You know, I don't understand what I'm doing for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it kind of like goes on this way until he says, you know, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body uh, of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. His perspective, Arminius' perspective was that Paul wasn't talking about himself here. Okay. He was talking about a hypothetical man who was still living under the law and was convicted of his sin, but not regenerate. And this ruffled some feathers because some of them began to accuse him of being a Pelagian. Mm -hmm. It was the first time. It wouldn't be the last time. Right. We'll talk about whether or not that is warranted. Uh, but in any case, that's that's what he was. So so the the reason they accuse him of being a Pelagian, because now this is a huge, huge callback was that Pelagius taught that um, Christians could theoretically, or people rather, could theoretically obey perfectly. Right. That, that theoretically we could fulfill the law. We, we, we aren't necessarily, um, there's not necessarily original sin, as it were. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's only the sins that we willfully do, and it's there's we're not born into a state of sin, right? And so, so by for the argument is that if Arminius is suggesting that someone who is wrestling with sin to that degree couldn't be regenerate, that must be someone who's not yet saved. They're saying, oh, you're talking about this is something that Pelagius would say because someone who is saved could th- could you know actively obey the Lord well. Right. And there wouldn't be this war within them. That's that's the that's the argument against him. Which just I, I understand the argument at an academic level. Mm-hmm. At the level of personal experience, like who doesn't deal with the waging on of war within the inner being? Yeah. Yeah. So it's an it's an interesting perspective that he comes up with. And he's kind of taken aback. He's like this is how I, this, according to my conscience, this is what I consider the passage mm-hmm. to be. I don't think Paul's talking about himself. I think he's proposing a theoretical person who's not yet saved. It, <sighs> it's foreign within the text. It's, it's not a concept that Paul or any of the epistle writers use. Um, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. He continues preaching through Romans. Romans 9, again, is a, is a tricky one. Um, and he kind of deviates from where Calvin and Beza were at, and we'll talk more about that in the theological section. So, so he's distinguishing himself. He's he's reformed, but he's just he's like I'm not I'm not necessarily with the majority here. I'm right. I, 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 I see it differently. I understand these passages differently, particularly when it comes to predestination and election and and these types of doctrines. Right, and this is where the concept of reformed theology. I, I have three soapboxes for today. Okay. This, this is, is number one. number one. Okay. Soapbox number one. That Reformed theology is equated to the acceptance of Calvin's writings. Mm-hmm. I don't understand this. Reformed theology is the moving away from Catholic theology. Yeah. That is the Reformation. Mm-hmm. That is what we've been doing all the way to this point progressing from the false teachings of Catholicism. And now, all of a sudden, with Arminius, and and maybe with others as well, the Anabaptists as well, Reformed theology is now the measure of how much are you on board with Calvin? Mm -hmm. As if Calvin was the Reformer. Right. You see what I'm saying here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the idea the idea that it presents is there was Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. There came Calvin. Mm-hmm. Now there is Reformed theology. Yeah. Do you side with Calvin? Calvin is a second generation reformer. Mm-hmm. If you want to do this, then throw back to Luther. Sure. Throw back to Zwingli. Throw back to mm-hmm. Hus. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, sure. Like there are there are a number of guys, not John Calvin. And so one of the things, in fact, all three of my soapboxes are just around the way we've chosen to label things. Sure. Right? Because Arminius goes to his grave saying, this is Reformed theology. This is anti-Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And as we get into it, we'll, we'll debate whether or not that is true. Mm. Um, but, I, I, but for them to say, no, it's not Reformed because it's not Calvin— and that it persists today, mm-hmm. it's just the kind of thing that I'd like to wave a magic wand at and make yeah. it go away. Yeah, no, for sure. 
1603, he leaves the pastorate and he returns to teach at university. And while he's teaching, controversies kind of erupt a little bit. Just some 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 of his students take to his perspective, others mm-hmm. oppose it. And, you know, he has this conflict, particularly with another scholar and professor, uh, Gornerus, and our, so no, Gomerus, sorry, I'm mispronouncing, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, (laughs) whatever, let's go, let's go with Gomerus, okay, and, and, and some of their conflicts, these theological conflicts, they actually go all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court in the Netherlands at the time, as they're kind of, negotiating the the differences between you know Calvinistic doctrine and what Arm, Arminius is teaching they say the points of difference between the two professors mostly relating to the subtle details of the doctrine of predestination were of minor importance and could coexist amen and they essentially said we know you don't agree but love each other and figure it out what what yeah i know so that that was the initial decision by by the supreme court it was interesting that like this theological matter goes to a like judicial court but Mm -hmm. that's how things were at that time yeah yeah while you're doing that i came up with a fourth soapbox okay fun so anyways these controversies they continue though they're told to get along and they don't and and it's it's not it's not all on arminius or gomerus they they both they just they just can't their kids in the back seat they He's just touching me. They can't I'm not let touching it lie. You. Yeah. yeah. So they write in opposition to one or one another. It goes back and forth and it goes to the courts and 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 it just this this process of of debate continues if, until Arminius's death. He dies in 1609 after a very rapid decline in his health. Mm-hmm. But even though he dies, his perspectives on theology continue to live on through a group that will come to be known the Remonstrants. And so what the remonstrants do um, is they, not long after he di- uh, Arminius dies, they actually write to the government of the Netherlands um, and, and propose five, art- what are called five articles of remonstrance, which essentially outline their disagreements with Calvinistic doctrine, which was the, the predominant view at the time. So after Arminius dies, they say, okay, we were with him. We know that not everybody liked what he had to say, but we did. Mm-hmm. And there are five things that we disagree with when it comes to the dominant view that's happening in, in Holland right now. Right, which is which is going to make it a little bit interesting for some people to to consider. Because the Remonstrants are a response to Calvinism. Mm-hmm. But written before the tulip, yeah. So the so f- the tulip, <laughs> the tulip is a response to the remonstrance of Arminianism, mm-hmm. which were a response to Calvinism. Mm-hmm. So as five points, yeah, the remonstrance, the remonstrance come first, yeah. But the doctrine of it is second. Calvin did not write down the five points of Calvinism, and it didn't. <laughs> spell out tulip no for his french speaking self no 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 so that that's something to to understand too is that where those of you who are familiar with tulip or the uh, five points of calvinism those 
although you could find those concepts and themes in his teaching, they weren't outlined the way that they were until after some people got up and said, we don't like what Calvin has to say, and these are the five things we don't like about it. And then the Calvinists turned around and said, we don't like what you're saying, and here's how we're going to outline it, and that's when you get the five points of Calvinism. And interestingly enough, those five points become their identifying markers, the pillars of mm-hmm. modern Calvinism. Right. The pillars are just the five points of rebuttal. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like they allowed someone else to develop their pillars. I th- yeah. Yeah, in a way, actually. Because it's reactionary. Right. Yeah, it is reactionary. They're, I would say that they are the defining factors. Oh, 100%. Right? Because there, are, there, are, there is a great deal of commonality right. in theology between Jacob Arminius and John Calvin. They, they right. agree on far, far, far more than what they disagree on. Right, and so when we when we made the statement that in, in the Calvin episode, mm. when we there we said those who will come against and say even Calvin wasn't a Calvinist, it's not true. The tenets of Calvinism, as they're defined in the tulip, are all there. Calvin believed them. Calvin taught them. There's no denying that. Mm. Uh, just that they would be segmented out and identified and given as pillars is reactionary and actually created by an opposing group. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting... It's, al- it's almost like they let the Arminians... Sorry, I keep interrupting you. It's okay. It's, it's almost like they let the opposing team, which I even hate the term opposing, uh, but they would have seen it that way at this point because they've given up on the Catholics. That's no longer fun. <laughs> we fought that thing over and over again. Let's fight and let's fight with someone else. Uh, it's letting the opposing team write your mission statement. Yeah, fair enough. Or dictate your game plan, at the very least. So, here are the five articles of the remonstrance in in, in the relative order that they, they came about. And, and th- we're, we're simplifying here, okay? Mm-hmm. Th- we're not, we're not going to get into... You can find them online, thanks to the miracle of the internet. Um, and this is what is being will be answered in the whole tulip thing. The first is the idea of, uh, of conditional election. Election is conditional upon faith. So, so God elects those he knows will accept him later. So beforehand, God does an election process. He elects those who will be saved, but he elects them because he knows that they will receive him. Hold on. I don't think we can talk about this without talking about lapsarianism. Okay, you know what? Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, let's let's go. Let's do the switch into the theology. Mm-hmm. But we have to talk about lapsarianism. Sure. I, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm normally I like to do the whole like not show my hand kind of thing. I'm gonna do that. Okay. Um, as I sit here in my Southern <laughs> Baptist <laughs> Theological Seminary hat. Yeah. Where I am enrolled and on this. Gospel Coalition podcast, mm-hmm. uh, all, well, heavily influenced and broadly reformed mm-hmm. uh, by the Calvinistic camp, mm-hmm. um, although SBTS probably less so, um, although Al Mohler very much so. Mm-hmm. The way, the, the, th- the reason that I don't have a side on this Soapbox number one, you don't have to. No. 
the the notion that you are either a Calvinist or an Arminian, and that all groups that are not Calvinists are Arminians, is such a falsehood. Mm-hmm. It's such a falsehood. Yeah. There are so many different schools of theology. These are not the defining factors. They're not even opposite ends of the spectrum. No. And so, so that whole like, oh, you're not a Calvinist, then you're an Arminian. No. And, and I know that it frustrates people because we, I have had this conversation with many frustrated people. <laughs> um, one, I don't think you have to. Mm-hmm. Two, I don't think they're opposing and one defaults you into the other. Right. And and for me, it all comes down to the concept of lapsarianism. Yeah. And the reason I think we have to go to it now is because it is the root from which all of this springs. Okay. And I think lapsarianism can be a little bit silly and delving into things that we have no answer for. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think you're I, I, I think you're on to something there. So super lapsarianism. Okay, yeah. So so we just just to g- get people, the lapsarian debate is based on the the order in which God makes particular decisions or decrees. Right. So in what order does he decide to do particular things? And that is where the debate is. Right. And and I think there's two flaws in that. One, there's no biblical authority to base this order on. There's no passage of scripture that says God decided this, then this, then this. I would disagree, but that's good. We'll I'm going to argue there. otherwise. We'll get there. Yep. Uh, and and then I will also say um, oh, <laughs> that you did that made me think. Just not, and not, now I'm distracted. No, sorry, sure. not, no, not totally, but on one particular issue. There's there, there might be hints, yeah. but as far as it being spelled out, it's no, not spelled right. out. Yeah, so, so it's not an anti-biblical position mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to not hold to superlapsarianism. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Uh, secondly, it insists that God operates in a l- time order, Right? That because we experience and operate within a space-time continuum, God must also do things within a space-time continuum, and it's impossible to conceive of God not being limited to order of events. Mm -hmm. But limiting God to order of events is to limit God. Yeah. And so that it would—maybe God does do this in an order of events. He creates the earth in an order of events— and spells that out, but it's biblically spelled out, mm. I would say. Uh, but there's no reason for us to presume God is necessarily operating within an ordered events in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's lapsarianism has to do with the fall, the lapse. Yeah. Uh, supra means before. Yeah. So it can also be called pre-lapsarianism. So before yeah. the fall. It basically, the four tenets of these various lapsarian positions are given to us today by Miller J. Erickson. Nice. Number one, the first in this hypothetical order. <laughs> the decree to save some and condemn others. In other words, God decides he's going to do a creation, and the first thing that he s- decides is... 
I'm going to save some people and condemn others. Secondly, the decree to create both the elect and the reprobate. Some will be saved, some will not. And I'm going to create people who will be saved and who will not. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, God deciding, I'm going to create people for condemnation Mm -hmm. as a part of the unveiling of my creative plan. Third, the decree to permit the fall of both classes. So the fall in the garden is just the means by which he carries out his plan. Mm-hmm. But these people were received, elected, and condemned even before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the decree to provide salvation only for the elect, which mm-hmm. is kind of the same thing said. Yeah. So, so in essence, God decides to save some and condemn others before creation and before the fall. And the fall becomes the means by which he carries out that decree. Yeah, and so that's super last there, and that's what Calvin and Theodore Beza, those guys, were promoting at that time. Right. Infralapsarianism. You're getting your money's worth today with Mm -hmm. these fancy words. Yeah. The infralapsarian position is the decree to create human beings. God has decided that he is going to build a creation, and his image bearers will be humanity. The decree to permit the fall, I will allow this to happen. The decree to save some and condemn others, so there will be, now that we have a fall, some rescued and some not. The decree to provide salvation only for the elect. Mm. Okay? So those set apart in salvation will be saved. Then sublapsarianism is an attempt to have unlimited atonement with limited application. It's for those four-point Calvinists out there, when we get to what the four-point Calvinism is, <laughs> we may come back to that. Yeah. Uh, it's less common, yeah. but um, worth a revisit when it comes to that time. Yeah. So when it comes to the Lapsarian theology, I'll show my hand here. Um, I'm with Herman Bovink, who we're, we're not going to get to yet, mm. who rejects it all. Yeah, he says no, and he he is a Calvinist, um, but he's not with with Calvin and Beza on the Lapsarian question. Um, essentially, being God operates in a way where all His decisions mutually work together. Absolutely, and so to try and impose some kind of sequential order, I mean, perhaps, perhaps, sure, maybe, but it doesn't seem like something that we need to impose on Him. And it would make more sense to me that a God who is eternal and timeless Mm -hmm. um, would not need to be subjected to that kind of sequential thing. Yeah, I I think one of the things that we think about with God is God is an eternal being. We think, oh, well, forever past and forever future. Mm -hmm. I think the better way to think of it is just outside of the restraints of time. Yeah, I agree. The concept of time doesn't exist for him. So it's not about eternity past and eternity future. It's just about... He's the I am. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the eternally present. Time affects us, mm-hmm. but God affects time. That, right. that, that's the di- distinction there, right? Right. Yeah, so I think Bavin goes on to that, onto something, mm-hmm. which is, and I also know that you can call, you can say Bavin's the Calvinist despite disagreeing with his Lapsarian position. He probably would have ended up in jail. 
over that <laughs> position at the, at one point. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Uh, but I think it also shows that these concepts of discussion that will become the divides exist apart from lapsarianism. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just with Bavinkham being so put off by the fact that people went to jail and even died over these lapsarian positions Yeah, that I just, I just don't want to play the game. Yeah. 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 No, that's fair. So that that's kind of a that's an underlayer, I guess, before we get into the five articles. But let's okay. we'll, so, we'll get back into them. So the first one I said conditional election. So just to briefly recap your memory, election is conditional upon faith. So God elects those he foreknows. So he knows he knows that you are going to accept him, and so he elects you before the foundations of the earth. That's the idea. That's one way it's been described. Yeah. Right. Which does kind of turn on its own head because God is the creator of personalities and circumstances. And so how is it that that person became the kind of person who would accept God? The creator of their personality and circumstance put them in such a position. Yeah. Uh, you're going to find out by the end of this, I don't claim to be a Calvinist or an Arminian. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, like to, I like to apologize for both of them. <laughs> um. So, so this is what it says in the remonstrance. Mm. Uh, so the question, the, the other, a couple of other things that I want to bring to question as we read through these. It, you already mentioned, is it Pelagianism? Is, it, is there a notion that a person could feasibly live perfectly without God? Right? Uh, and the next one is Calvinistic doctrines, the tulip, have come to be known as the doctrine of grace. Um, which presumes that Arminianism is the doctrine of works, right, and is devoid of grace, and that one really bothers yeah, me. Yeah, that's not fair at because all. Because I have I have Arminian friends that are really great theologians mm. and really love God, mm -hmm. and to say to them, "Oh, you don't believe in the doctrines of grace," yeah, is it's really undercutting. Yeah, it's it's unfair. Right. It, it's kind of like the Orthodox Church going, oh, you're not a part of Orthodoxy. <laughs> you're like, actually, I am and you're not. <laughs> so those are the things that I want you to hear mm. in mind. Is there grace or is this works? Right. As we work through these things. Sure. I think it's good to put these forward at the beginning. So conditional predestination. The statement is God has immutably decreed immutably decreed from eternity to save those men and women who, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, believe in Jesus Christ and by the same grace persevere in the obedience of faith to the end. Mm. And, on the other hand, to condemn the unbelievers and unconverted. Right. Do you have any problem with that? Um, no, I don't either, but I also know that the grace that they're talking about is a version of prevenient grace that I'm, I don't agree with. So that's, that's but where the statement the itself, the statement itself, I'm with it. Yeah. The statement itself. For sure. Yeah. Right. I'm with it. I don't, I don't even know that you need to label that conditional predestination at that point. No, no, no. I, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. It, the, yes, you're right. And and that's where we instantly say, just to answer my soapboxes, is it 
Pelagianism, or you know what? I, this is where I'm going to call out even further. Those who call it semi-Pelagianism, mm. right? Like, okay, so you're not a Pelag- you're not a heretic, but you're a semi-heretic. You're a semi-heretic, <laughs> which is just another way of saying you're a heretic and I'm a coward. <laughs> I'm going to throw that out there. If you like to use the term semi-Pelagianist, maybe what you're saying is you're you're a heretic and I'm a coward because I'm not willing to say it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but to make that that link is too far because. Mm. God's immutable decree from eternity past is the point being placed here. And it is done by the grace of the Holy Spirit, right? So we have grace mm-hmm. and we have eternity past in a decree. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not really space inside of that, in my opinion, mm-hmm. for someone to say, well, hypothetically, neither one of those things are needed. Mm, right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Second article? Unlimited atonement. This one's a bit longer. Yeah. Is it, okay. You get you read it, and then I'll give my Cole's notes summary. Okay. Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man. And his grace is extended to all. His atoning sacrifice is in and of itself sufficient for the redemption of the whole world and is intended for all by God the Father. But its inherent sufficiency does not necessarily imply its actual efficacy. Mm. The grace of God may be resisted and only those who accept it by faith are actually saved. He who is lost is lost by his own guilt. Mm-hmm. I think John Piper could have written that. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I, so this idea that Christ died for all, even non-believers, for me, in my mind, gets sticky mm-hmm. when we start talking about the atonement. Sure. Did Christ bear the wrath of God for your sin? If he did, if he endured and absorbed the wrath for your sin and you're not saved. That doesn't make any sense to me yeah. because then there, then where is the punishment? Where is the punishment for the unregenerate? If right. Christ already absorbed the wrath of God for everyone, even those who wouldn't come to faith, then what is left to be poured out? That is, that's right. my issue with, that's my issue with your meaning position. Now, but let me preface by saying, I don't think they're heretics. I just think they're wrong on that particular issue. But the argument that it is there yet ineffectual in, in such a way that it is a coupon given but not redeemed. Seems that half is, w- halfway to me, though. Say what? Seems halfway. Like, we just criticize the Calvinists for going halfway. It just seems halfway. It seems like, well, it's sufficient, but it's not effective. Well, what does that, what does that mean? Yeah, so they w- their argument would be that it becomes effective at the point of faith. Okay. Mm. Okay. That's that's when that is claimed. So, so for instance, if I gave you a gift, it's yours, it's there, but you don't have any benefit of that gift until you open it, okay. until you receive that gift. Or if I was to say, let me buy your lunch, right? It's available. If you say, nah, I got it, that's fine. You're going to have to pay for it, mm-hmm. right? But you had your opportunity. It was there. It was sufficient. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't effectual. Because it wasn't received, mm-hmm. right? 
So the the point I would say, and this is where this is where I, I think there's probably um, a Calvinist listening to this screaming at the speakers that I said uh, Piper could have written this. It might be Piper. Maybe John Piper's listening to this, and, and he's. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no, I don't, because now he's screaming at me. <laughs> and and that guy's feisty. No one wants to be hated by. I don't know if you can be hated by John Piper, um, but no one wants to be yelled at by John Piper. <laughs> but but the reason I say that is because um, I this this idea that it is that it is only in faith that that could be made effectual, that it comes into place, I think plays out in Calvinism in such a way as they would they would argue that the world and the classic John 3.16 is always referenced. It is actually referenced in the original remonstrance. Uh, the world means, some will argue, specifically those who are elect, although the grammar just doesn't allow for that, mm. right? Yeah. Um, so the concept that Christ died for the world, the concept that um, God wills that none would perish, but that all would be saved, they're not unbiblical arguments. No. And, and granted, it does, Peter does preach, and all who were appointed unto salvation mm-hmm. were saved, right? Or yeah. believed. Um, so there, so we are talking about difficult things. And, yeah. and, the, and things that, were not surface level then for people who were scholars of the Bible. And now, coming up on 500 years removed, have been hotly studied and unresolved. Right. <laughs> means we're probably dealing with things that aren't fully revealed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's my position. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. My, I, I still think yeah. it's okay to lean. Sure. A particular way. 100%. I think we just have to be careful that when it comes to matters of interpretation, like the things we're talking about, that we don't discredit or or disavow or you know throw those who yep. disagree on various inter- interpretations under the bus. I have a position. I have a position that is predominantly Calvinist, but right. that doesn't mean that all those who don't align with that are somehow lesser. Yeah, it's just it just to me it makes sense while still understanding that this is a framework, an extra biblical framework that helps to make sense of what scripture says. Right. It's not scripture itself. Right. So this is interpretation mm-hmm. of scripture yeah. that we're talking about. Yeah. And I been thrown under the bus, tried to crawl out the other side, Got pushed back under the bus. <laughs> By the other side? No, we don't want you either. <laughs> right. So because of my position, I've just pitched a tent under the bus. There you go. Right? Just live there. And uh, and I don't think I'm alone. No. I, I think know. a lot of people I think a lot of people will hear this and they'll be like, whoa, that's that's even a thing. I never even realized that was a thing. Mm. Um, I'm going to make an argument that uh, while camped out under that bus, I realized that uh, there's a, one Charles Spurgeon who lives there with me. Um, even though he wrote, even though he said explicitly, even though he wrote, uh, on a defense of Calvinism (laughs) as a chapter in his autobiography. Um, I, I think we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So the next is the idea of prevenient grace. So God provides a grace to all human beings. 
this I'm, is actually Article 4. Oh, this is just the order I have it you in. You know sorry. why? Why? Because that? that's the order it is in the tulip. Oh, is that what it is? This is why I think is rightly said of Arminius that he is the most famous uh, theologian to have never been read. Well, I don't know. <laughs> this is just what I this is what I had. So So the in the remonstrance number 3 is saving faith. Okay. Well, then read that one then. Okay. Man in his fallen state is unable to accomplish anything really or truly good. Not Pelagianism. That's not Pelagianism. You're right. Uh, and therefore also unable to attain to saving faith unless he be regenerated and renewed by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Hmm. What portion of that would you disagree with? None of it. I 100%. But again, I would none of it. None of the none of the words. Sure, but what we have to be careful of is saying but I know that by that they mean mm -hmm. what we might be working with are not the remonstrants. We might be working with a tradition that evolved eventually from the remonstrants. Right. In which case, if you want to make that argument, you have to allow people to come at you with hyper-Calvinistic positions and say, I can't agree with that because of this hyper-Calvinist. Right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah, no, just because what I know of, of their perspective of prevenient grace, which I disagree with. Sure. So that that's why. Because the grace, the prevenient grace, which is the next thing, yeah. is described as a grace of God that acts upon everybody. And it comes before faith. And so what this prevenient grace does is it enables people to respond to the offer of salvation. But it's a grace that can be resisted. It's a grace that can be rejected. It doesn't guarantee salvation. It's, so it's a grace given by God that enables the possibility of salvation but mm -hmm. can be resisted can be rejected i think that every i think that the remonstrance should be required reading for all bible college students mm. because that's not how i read resistible grace or prevenient, from, prevenient grace well that's not what it yeah. is okay. in the remonstrance okay this is from the christian classics ethereal library right okay. it's as solid of an online source as you can get it says resistible grace um, grace is the beginning, continuation, and end of our spiritual life. Mm -hmm. On board 100%. So that man can neither think nor do any good or resist sin without prevening, without grace entering in, mm -hmm. right? That we would will and do, Philippians mm -hmm. chapter 2. Um, without prevening, cooperating, and assisting grace. All of these things are necessary. The prevenient yeah. grace that you're talking about is the notion that grace accompanies the presentation of the gospel and opens the heart to be able to receive that truth. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the grace that goes before. Cooperating is the grace that... Uh, works in our spirit to bring us into faith and then the assisting grace is what causes perseverance god's grace to keep us and continue to continue to follow him mm -hmm. uh, but as for the manner of cooperation this grace is not irresistible for many resist 
the Holy Ghost. Mm. And they reference Acts chapter 7. Uh, so the issue for them of grace is whether or not grace is resistible, whether or not people can refuse to have faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Calvinist would say, no, grace is irresistible. Mm-hmm. And they would say Jesus is a gentleman. <laughs> or the Spirit. <laughs> or the Spirit is a gentleman. The Holy Ghost is their <laughs> reference here. Right. Yes, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Um, fair enough. Again, I disagree with it, but um, I don't believe it's resistible. But I understand. But again, it's, but, it's not outside the bounds of Scripture to, to come to that conclusion. I, I agree. And I one of the things that I, I find interesting when a Calvinist comes against Provenian grace um, is they talk about the elect being awakened by the Holy Spirit to faith mm-hmm. as a grace that goes before and calls them into faith. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a form of preceding grace. Mm-hmm. As it gets flushed out later on by other by people other than Arminius, yeah. I think that there's reason for them to disagree with that. Taking just the remonstrance themselves, mm-hmm. we're not on such shaky ground that these guys need to be compared to heretics. No, certainly not. Certainly not. And then lastly, the uncertainty of perseverance. This one's a big deal because this is, so far, I feel like we've noted, even in what, the reason I brought mine that printed these out is because I had multiple books that had a summary of the remonstrance similar to yours mm-hmm. that were obviously Calvinistic, even just in the, their order, mm-hmm. right? That they're ordered according to the Calvinism. Right, right. Just says, well, <laughs> this is what it is, so the opposite of it must be the remonstrance. Right, 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 right. Um, and I think we've already shown that that's not exactly true. No. In some cases, I would even argue different subject matter. For instance, saving faith. Mm-hmm. Right? Saving faith doesn't show up in the tulip. No. Um, so, fifth article. The uncertainty of perseverance is what it's titled at the top. Although grace is sufficient and abundant to preserve the faithful through all trials and temptations for life everlasting. So, grace is sufficient to keep us to the end. It has not yet been proved from Scripture that grace, once given, can never be lost. On this point, the disciples of Arminius uh, go further. Uh, So at this point, it becomes a commentary uh, on it. But the point is to say, Arminius says, I don't know about perseverance. Mm. I don't feel like it's yet been proven that it can never be lost. Mm but I'm still here for the conversation. Hmm. And so the notion, the notion that um, Arminius taught that you can lose your salvation is probably an overstatement. It seems to me from the remonstrance, which obviously are not from the hand of Arminius, but his direct followers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like within a year of after he died. Yeah. Right. Uh, Their point is to still hold true they would eventually, there will eventually be those who would say, no, you can lose your faith. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then they really wrestle with Hebrews uh, chapter 6 um, through that. Mm. But here they say, you know what, I don't know. I don't know, I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. I at least respect the fact that in, in such a statement, they're willing to say, we don't know. Whereas yeah. so many times 
we feel like we have to have every answer um, or we're without a position. So on my soapboxes, is it Pelagianism? No. Is it mm-hmm. semi-Pelagianism? No. Mm-hmm. And I think people have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. to call it out further. Uh, yeah. Are they the doctrines of grace? This thing's full of grace. Yeah. Full of grace and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of man cannot without sure. talk, which is grace. Yeah. So to call to call the tulip the doctrines of grace, mm-hmm. I think is condemning someone else by claiming the trophy. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's a trophy that's uniquely yours to claim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's it's, so it's just unfair. understanding. It's a difference in un- it's not it's two different doctrines that understand the operation and efficacy of grace slightly differently. Right. Essentially is what it is what it is. You so take a moment. Yeah. I'm gonna race to my office and grab my copy of a defense of Calvinism. Okay. I'll be right back. Sounds good. Yeah. And I mean when it comes to our Arminian theology, when it comes to like that understanding of how we're saved, I mean this continues to exist in in the modern church today there are plenty of churches where this is the dominant view the methodist churches hold to this um a lot of baptist churches still are predominantly arminian in their perspective um seventh day they would call it baptist traditionalist <laughs> well wait till we get to our baptist Southern Baptist. they will be disappointed uh was that too fast does that mean I had no 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 keep my spurgeon too close pentecostals to there's a lot there's a lot of you know modern church traditions that still hold to a predominantly arminian understanding of salvation and these are people that we would have you know that me as a quote-unquote calvinist um don't hate me um, would still see fellowship with, would still consider mm-hmm. brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm not going to hate on them for for the differences in perspectives and the differences in the way that we understand these really complicated and 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 difficult subjects of theology. Right, and even the even that you would make the statement of "Don't hate me" shows how close these groups ought to be. Mm-hmm. That you're talking to predominantly our church. There will be people who hear this podcast who will be who might be really upset and disappointed mm-hmm. yep. that I hold to the position that I do. There, there are anti-Calvinists and anti-Arminians yep. that are, I would say, unreasonably so. Yeah. So this is my statement on Calvin. I or not Calvin on on Spurgeon. Spurgeon, because Spurgeon is a Calvinist, a stated Calvinist. Mm-hmm. At one, so this is an excerpt, I believe, from his autobiography called Defense of Calvinism. At one point, he even talks about another pastor, and he says he was immature in his faith, an Arminian, as all who are fledgling in their faith are. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I know. That's just to say, like, he's, he's pretty decided on the point, mm-hmm. right? But he also says a number of things that I think Calvinists would have a problem with. At some point. And, and so this is this is what he says that I'm on board with. I do not think I differ from any of my hyper-Calvinistic brethren in what I do believe, but I differ from them in what they do not believe. Right? So he's dealing with, in his time, hyper-Calvinism versus, uh, we'll, we'll get to it later, basically hyper-Calvinists are 
one famous example will go so far as to say uh, to William Carey, you're arrogant for wanting to do missions work. God Mm -hmm. will save his elect and he doesn't need your help to do it. Right. Right. Or I refuse to preach the gospel lest it fall on reprobate ears who are not worthy to hear those words. Mm. Right. Just God's going to do his thing and it doesn't matter what the church does. Mm -hmm. He's going to do his thing. Yeah. That's hyper Calvinism. Yeah. So he says, uh, I do not hold to any less than they do, but I hold to a little more. And I think a little more of the truth revealed in scripture. Not only are there a few cardinal doctrines by which we can steer the ship north, south, east, and west, but as we study the word, we shall begin to learn something about northwest, north, and northeast, and all else that lies between the four cardinal points. The system of truth revealed in scripture is not simply one straight line, but two, and no man will ever uh, get a right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at the two lines at once. For instance, I read in one book of the Bible, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Mm. Yet, I am taught in another part of the same inspired word, that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that ruleth, but of God that showeth mercy. I see in one place God in providence presenting, uh, presiding over all, and yet I see and cannot help seeing that man acts as he pleases, and that God has left his actions in a great measure to his own free will. Now, if I were to declare that man was so free to act that there were no control of God over his actions, I should be driven to near atheism. And if, on the other hand, I should declare that God so overruleth all things that man is not free enough to be responsible, I should be driven at once into antinomianism or fatalism. Mm -hmm. That God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory to each other. If then I find uh, taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. Mm -hmm. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can contradict each other. I do not believe they can either be wielded into one upon any earthen anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity. There are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them the furthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. Yeah. Awesome. That's my brand of Calvinism, just if anyone's curious. That's, that's biblical. Yeah, um. so, so <laughs> I, think what, I think what he's saying here is those Calvinists who need to reinterpret Hebrews or other passages of Scripture, mm. who need to take the word world from John 3.16 mm. and try to explain why that word was used mm. to fit their theology, I, I think Spurgeon's saying 
You don't need to do that. Yeah. Well, and the reality is... And, is and I, I'm, I'm just going to say this on the flip side, because I know we have listeners that are anti-Calvinist. Yeah. Um, on the flip side of that, Arminians do the same thing. Oh, yeah. Right? They take passages that are very much God's foreordination and try to maneuver those things into that theology. Mm-hmm. In some ways, that's helpful for keeping our systems nice and together. I think Calvin's saying it's not necessary mm-hmm. and that you can still teach Scripture yeah. and that both things are true. Yeah. And, and that is what some people like to call a, compatib- a, a compatibilist, which depending on which camp you're from, yeah. compatibilists are actually Arminians or actually Calvinists. I've been, like I said, I live under this bus. Yeah. And, and so did we get away from the historical side a little maybe, bit? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, and I, I don't personally know many Calvinists who would disagree with anything that you read of Spurgeon there personally, but, um, that, mm. no, I wouldn't. Pi- I Piper, I every, every atom vibrates <laughs> at the foreordination of God. Yeah. And yet we are still, we still exercise still our will. And those two things meet, I think. Anyways, in any case, like there, even when in our preaching, right? Like in our, <laughs> in our preaching, we don't get up there and say, you know, if you were elected before the foundations of the earth, now repent be and believe, repent. right? Like we don't say that. the rest of you might as well go home and enjoy your Saturday, your <laughs> right, Sunday, right? Like that's just not that doesn't make sense, right? Like we understand that people are saved through hearing, through the preaching of God's word, right? And that there is an element of them like surrendering and repenting and choosing and all of that 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 happens, and so the difference lies in like how we understand what is going on behind the scenes on a spiritual level. In, in in what how are different things operating and how is God's like is it a done deal beforehand or is it not right and if it is is it because of just simply knowledge or is it choosing and what what does that look like and all of those things are not abundantly clear from scripture or we could say that there are passages that that color it in slightly different ways and and so we need to have a measure of grace for those who understand God's grace in, and I'll say slightly different ways. One of the things that's important to know, a lot of times people present Calvinism and Arminianism as opposite ends of the spectrum, and they're not. There is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. There is a spectrum. But the opposite of Calvinism is not Arminianism. It's Roman Catholicism. So, <laughs> like, so would you agree that with Arminius that he was a reformer? Um, a third generation reformer? I would say he was, yeah. Reform- of course but he that was. That is reformed theology? That is that is a branch of reformed theology. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It is not what has come to be known as yeah. reformed theology. Well, there are plenty of people who would say that we're, we can't be reformed because we don't baptize babies. And I do know plenty of people who've told that me, oh, yeah. to me to my face. Yeah. So so we aren't reformed because we don't baptize. Right? Or that we're not creedal. Yeah, sure. Um, so, again, how people define the word reformed and what constitutes part of that camp is going to vary widely from person to person. There are plenty of churches, maybe even some not too far from here that would say, essentially, if you're not part of our specific denomination, you are not reformed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that is a, that's just, that's just the world we live in. Yeah. You know what? My goal is not to be 
counted the most reformed. <laughs> it's not a competition. The, the goal is to be counted most Christ-like. Yeah, faithful. Right? Faithful be, be and obedient. faithful yeah. in the pursuit of Christ. Yeah, um, 100%. And, and that's the goal of it all. Yeah. So I, I just, yeah, we we jumped all over Yeah. We didn't map. even really get to Dort. Yeah. Dort so is just them answering those five points. Dort is all of this going on trial. Yeah, and they just they come up with the the five points of Calvinism with a loaded jury, by the way. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's not of course, like of course it was. It's not like a jury of peers that were vetted to make sure they had yeah. no personal connections or yeah. convictions in yeah. the uh, no, no, in no the no. outcome of this. Yeah. No. 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 And it was there not was, an... that there was equal representation. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> it right. was really just like, how are we going to answer this in a way that puts this thing down? That's that's what. That's what the Canons of Dort were. Um, that being said, still got plenty of respect for the Canons of Dort. Again, don't agree with absolutely everything there. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is a foundational document, particularly for, I mean, for those of us, our listeners who are local, um, Christian Reformed, Canadian Reformed, United Reformed, Netherlands Reformed. Like this is a, this is mm -hmm. a, this is a authoritative document. And foundational document in those churches, right? Um, which is the response. Again, oddly enough, it's it's a response to something, but it's it's still um, it's an important document for them, and worth reading and worth considering. I would say, yep. even if you even if you don't land on the exact same point, right? Or points, I should say. <laughs> right. Uh, we were going to call this episode Dort, but it ended up. Not being, we skipped it. We're gonna have to come up with a title. We'll come back to Dort. I'm drawing a blank. We'll 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 start the next episode. We'll have to Dort. clean it up. Yeah. yeah, we'll clean up with Dort and uh, go from there. Yeah, my point was just saying we were all over the chronological map because these things that take place have affected the Protestant Christianity more, maybe more than anything else. Until mm -hmm. we, until we get to the world of charismaticism mm -hmm. and spiritual gifts. And then we will have a contender for that title. Right. <laughs> but at this point, amongst those people who are reforming, it started off as these, the big deal was communion mm -hmm. and then baptism. Mm -hmm. But then lapsarianism mm -hmm. just blows the whole thing up yeah. in a way that has really divided people. Yeah. And I think we have to be careful that we don't discredit those who are from different camps. Like, the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley, are not Calvinists. Mm -hmm. But I love their songs. I love their music. It's fantastic. They're Wesleyans. And they're Wesleyans, which are uh, Arminians, essentially. Uh, well, they're uh, Wesleyans. Sure. You're going to call Calvin a, Luther, a no, Lutheran? No, okay, but they, they align more closely with whatever. Anyways, all, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, they're on the, they're, we don't discredit them. Right. Which What's interesting, actually, is you and I, we looked up the author of a book that w wrote a book on... I don't know what it was called. It, it, Cole's notes is Calvinists are going to hell, essentially. Mm -hmm. And and the guy who wrote the book, we checked out his website, and in it he wrote an article about how we need real preaching these days. And he pointed to Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon as his examples right. of the real preaching we need. They're both Calvinists. If, if <laughs> only if only these if only people preached like these men right. with authority and not being afraid to say what they really mean. Calvinist. Yeah. So it's just let's not let's not be let's not be silly as mm -hmm. we navigate through these things, and let's understand that there is a lot to be offered by people who understand these things 
maybe mm-hmm. a little differently than us. And if we don't fully wrap our minds around, if you're listening to this and you're saying, I don't even know what I think on some of this stuff, that's okay. You're in good company. There's plenty of people in that position as well. I'll join you. Yeah, Tim will join you. Join me under the bus. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, and it's produced by Alex Walker. See you next time. See you, Dort. <laughs>